playback. Welcome to Q Playback. Uh, Christopher Sprake here, and today my guest is Dan Brody. Good day, the Dan. Good to see you, Chris. Uh, thanks so much for coming in. Uh, now, Dan, you've just released studio album number eight. Nine. Nine. Sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I should have done more research. No, no. It says eight in the. I think Apple Music said eight. You send this stuff out, nobody reads it. Uh, so the Ballad of Cow- Cowboy Dan. Um, so we'll get to that in a little bit, but um, at a recent gig, we were having a, a little chat and we were talking about piano lessons and uh, how if we got the notes wrong, we might get uh, our fingers slapped. Oh, yeah. Um, so is that where music began for you? Um, piano? <laughs> Tor- or Torment. Tor- that's right. <laughs> Torture. Um or, or was there, what drew you into music in the first place? It was definitely that. Um, it was piano, but my dad was a musician. And so I grew up from very, from as long as I can remember, um, thinking that that was a pretty normal way to live your life. Mm. And dad was a full-time musician. And uh, so there was always music around the house. Uh and the piano lessons was really something that I wasn't actually drawn to. It was my father that w- wanted me to do it. And that, you know, that's sounding a little authoritarian, but he certainly wasn't an authoritarian, authoritarian guy. He just, he, he grew up quite poor and didn't learn piano. And he always, he was a guitarist. He thought that piano was where it was at and where right. you get the greatest... Yep. Um, I don't know. The, I guess the greatest mode of, ex, of expression could be debated, but um, well, so it really sort of covers the whole mm, um, frequency spectrum, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Low, yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, that's quite young at the age of eight to do that. I went across the road to this old lady who, um, after a few lessons, she said, "I can't teach you uh, because you're um, too good already." <laughs> Because I'm too good already, and get out. Because uh, I'm not reading the note. Because I'm not reading the notes. Because I'm doing it by ear. Yeah. And I think we spoke about that when we, when we we met recently. And and then I can't do it. And that was and that was it. And I went home and um, burst into tears. And that was the end of my musical career. For I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it was awful. <laughs> um, what a bitch. Um, and then a few months later. Um, I discovered the Suzuki method, which okay. I think is doing it more by ear. I can't really remember. I mean, it was a long time ago. And then I did classical and then I did jazz. I've always loved the piano. And now I'm back doing it a lot, playing for other people as well as on my own. Um, so. Well, I mean, it must have, you, you must have had a great love for it if um, that discipline to keep going with something, even after you'd been dismissed by uh, someone was still there. Um, I certainly didn't have that discipline. I'd argue I probably still don't have that discipline for any instrument. Um, and on the new album, there's also um, some accordion. So d- did you find that there was an easy transfer um, from piano to accordion or did, was it something that you had to work on extensively? Um, I do find it pretty easy that, uh, to transfer it over, although I've just got to put in a caveat that it was actually, uh, it's a guy called John Anderson playing accordion on, on the uh, on the album. Okay. Um, but um, he helped me buy my accordion, so I got him to play on the record, but um, I do play that most days. And um, 
you know, you can get button accordions, the series of buttons on your, for your right hand, or you can get piano. For me, it was always um, a piano. And I, yeah, I'm totally in awe of the accordion and um, just the breadth of styles you can play. It's quite a mournful instrument. It really suits, um, suits me, I think. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, I mean, most of... My associations with accordion have been more uh, traditional music um, yep. that my grandparents would play. Um, mm. uh, so it's it's nice to hear it sort of weaving its way into a more modern context. Um, yeah, that's a real that's a real beauty to, to music. The way that the producer Michael Hubbard mixed it in it just creates a kind of shimmering effect and a, I don't know a sense of romance. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so Michael was the new uh, the producer on the new album. Mm. Uh, but what were your first recording experiences, Dan? What, when was the first time you was it like with a uh, cassette recorder and playing it back and thinking, you know, like an answering machine? My <laughs> voice can't sound like that. Or <clears throat> no, I went straight into a, a professional recording studio um, at about the age of fifteen. From about the age of fifteen, I kind of decided what I wanted to do. Um, yeah, I just wanted to be a rock star really. And I just <laughs> thought, well, that's it. And so I, I joined a band, a local band, and they won some time or something in a studio. I think it was Platinum Studios, which is written oh, extensively gosh. about in, um, Tony Cohen's book, which I just mm. read. I think it was in South Melbourne. And, yeah. and the hours we got to do were, um, you know, off, off hours. So 11 PM to 6 AM. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I couldn't believe it, you know, being being in a studio. I'm sure kids these days probably go into those kind of environments <laughs> even younger. Yeah. Um, you know, things have gotten a lot more professional. But um, it was a great experience. And then I was I went to uni, uni and to Monash University and I had a little recording studio there and I recorded... Um, I recorded uh, an album of songs there which has, has never been released officially. Um... And I absolutely loved the experience. I just did it by myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you have someone engineering that or did you? Yeah, I had an engineer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I forgot her name, but I've run into her a bunch of times over the years and it's so nice. You know, you feel such a strong connection with um, people from those periods of your life. And I've spoken to her since and she goes, yeah, I remember you. And so that's nice. Yeah. It's interesting because um, what I've, I've found over the years that there are a lot of people that uh, want to start doing a little bit of recording at home and then they realise that all of the time that they're spending on trying to learn how to record, they'd prefer to be performing and yeah. writing. And So I think that the, you know, unless you're really into recording, I think there's something to be said for just being really good at your craft yeah. and, and letting someone else handle you know, all the fiddly bits. That's a really good point. I mean, I yeah, I mean, t- technology, I mean, that's a great point. The technology has allowed us to do everything. And I've certainly, you know, <laughs> I've certainly been guilty of that with my own releases. Oh, I'm going to do the artwork, the music videos, the <laughs> recording, the mastering, the... Yep. And there's something to be said about... I was just actually wrote about this on a post this morning. I... I um, I did a post about a music video that I made recently, a couple of years ago, called Old Betty, which is the first single from the album. And I worked with this incredible animator, uh, Demi O. And I've never met her. It was all done online. And I just wrote about the beauty of collaboration. And, um, you know, obviously there's 
financial constraints with people, but you know, sometimes you can do a, um, a bit of a swap, you know, if, if money's a problem or most artists are pretty good with other artists as well. You know, they know it's not a, a, a commercial venture. Um, and yeah, that's to, to your point, um, you know, you don't get a, a bricklayer to paint your house. Well, you can. I'm sure there's plenty of bricklayers. <laughs> Cash only. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, people are good at different things. And, you know, I'm a terrible illustrator, graphic designer. I mean, it's, but I, you know, I've had a go at it. I have made music videos, which is fun. But when you work with someone who's really into, like, a filmmaker, wow. I mean, yeah. you know, you see the difference. You do. Um, the Telecaster uh, on the wall behind you. You made it? I didn't make it. It, it was custom made and um, the Americana singer Steve Roach bartered it for studio time. <laughs> there you because go. I loved it so much. That looks so cool. <laughs> I love it. It's got a sunburst on it and everything. Kind of. Uh, it's uh, caramel. So, yeah, artists and artists bartering. Exactly. <clears throat> That's cool, yeah. Um, yeah, our dad... Our dad bought us a um, guitar from a op shop, uh, from a garage sale. My brother and I, my brother and I, have been playing together most of our lives, and uh, yeah, that's what we. It was similar to that one, but not not as nice. <laughs> yeah. Um. So after all of those, those I mean, obviously, ninth album, in you've had um, quite a variety of um, recording experiences. On Which the was the best? <laughs> Which was the worst? Yeah, name names, Dan, <laughs> right now. Um, so on the most recent um, record, you're working again with um, producer Michael Hubbard. Yeah. Um, how did how did that relationship come about? Um, I knew Mick from. Um, I was a fan of Spencer P. Jones, and I knew him quite well. Um, and used to do you know shows with him, and he's the for the listeners who don't know is the guitarist in the Beast Suburban and he, the Johnnies and he had his own solo he made about 10 records he played with Paul Kelly um, and I and so M Mick Hubbard was the guitarist with him for, in his solo stuff for like his last 10 years um, and so I met Mick and we always got along and he started producing in a, a really small studio about the size of where we are now and um yeah, I think he liked what I did and so he invited me around. It was all pretty casual and, yeah, I soon soon realised I'd struck gold. Um, nice. Yeah, he's got a really good, you know, a good ear. Um, Mick's quite a tradi traditional producer in the sense that um, he helps choose the songs. Uh, he, he's not... He's not there to engineer it. He does engineer it. You know what I mean? Mm. He's, he's, he's strong opinions. So, yeah, so I guess for some people, they might not be aware of the historical yeah. delegation of roles. So a producer uh, in the past was more someone that would work on arrangements, yeah. work on the songs, give um, feedback on the actual production of the music. I guess it was like song. an A&R person in a way almost, they'd, they'd almost yeah. say you know where this where that that song's crap yeah yeah um whereas the engineer was just there to do all the sound side of things and not so much say the song's crap mm. just make the crappy song sound good yeah um yeah so that, that's an interesting and that's the first i feel like that's the first time i'd 
really done that. And um, so we've made, yeah, two records together and uh, it's it's worked quite well. I guess what it does is it creates a, um, it creates more of a, um, a body of songs that fit together mm. as opposed to throwing all different songs in the mix as, as maybe I would. So, yeah. Mm. I have worked with American producers before um, on my early records, um, but, um, yeah, they did a good job, but I feel that that was more about getting incredible sounds. I worked with Oz Fritz, who'd done uh, Tom Tom Waits' record, mm-hmm. and um, John... Oh, God, I feel terrible. I forgot his <laughs> name. But anyway, they were good to work with, too. Different did, experience. Did you find that there was a tension between trying to create a commercially um, marketable product versus, In a way. versus your own vision for the songs? Uh, yeah, that was a different time. I was signed to EMI Records um, and... You know, I mean, yeah, for the, the point of getting, of flying over American producers, I mean, the, the money's just not there. I was, yeah. I, I, I was very lucky to get that, uh, have that experience. Um, but, and I was on, on EMI for about five years and big budgets, big budgets for videos, photo shoots. Um, yeah, that money is just not around anymore. Um, and, um, yeah, there's a bit of a sheen. There's a bit of a sheen to the songs, uh, but on the whole, I think EMI were one of the better record labels. I think there was only about four around at that time. Anyway, mm-hmm. maybe I don't. Maybe four or four or five. Maybe they were all around. But there was Sony, there was Sony, Warner, yeah. EMI, and then there was some big independents. But um, no, they were pretty good. It was run by a guy. Um, called Tony Harlow and he was very artist friendly and very much um, believed in you. He he signed The Living End and he signed Casey Chambers and he had a great love of, I guess, more roots. Um, Back then it was called alt country music and yeah, very supportive. So, Mm. Mm. And on that point of, um, I guess, money in the industry, just this morning I was um, talking to one of my kids saying Mm. how... um, like in the mid '90s, uh, with one of my early bands, um, you took it for granted that like you'd go to a pub and you'd play to you know a, a pretty much full pub. Um, and I think about it now, and I think um, a venue say the size of the Northcote Social Club, you just thought it was normal that you would go and play there like for a residency once a week, and yep. the place would be full. Yes, um, and that's what you're going to keep doing for forever. Whereas, yeah. like, these days people are like, oh, you, you pulled in a whole room. Yeah. <laughs> people are like that, aren't Ooh. they? They're more, that's a good point. They're more <laughs> astonished that you've done that than not. Yeah, you couldn't, yeah, you couldn't move. It's more of a, yeah, particularly for older artists. You know, my dad um, came up in a period, and I know the I know the generation before me have it, had it even better, which is the Oz Rock generation. Mm. You know, those bands would play five or six nights a week, three shows a night. I mean, that they play they play six o'clock, eight o'clock, and ten o'clock. You know, yeah. your, your, your Midnight Oils and your ACDCs, and so that period was incredible. Radio, there was a ton of radio support. There's yeah. not that around now, except for God bless three triple R and PBS yeah. and community radio. Double J is doing a good job, but that's digital. Um, the period before that, the generation before that was my dad's generation. And I mean, I've got articles at home and he said it was insane. He said there were not enough 
bands. They were wow. begging for bands yeah. and music. Ve- now, there was no, there wasn't really any venues then. I mean, they were very, very small. It was jazz. Mm. Rock stuff was all, people didn't want rock and roll. It was all done in town halls. Yeah, Melbourne Town Hall and all the town halls in every single suburb. Mm. So you'd have Collingwood Town Hall, Richmond Town. We we're talking about Collingwood mm. this morning, yep. and you know the very old suburbs, Fitzroy Town Hall. So a promoter would hire those, hire the band, and my dad said you couldn't move. There'd wow. be eight hundred, a thousand kids, yeah. all jammed in there, all sneaking. There was no alcohol allowed, but they'd all sneak it in. Um, and there were lots of riots and stuff between the new Australians, which were the Italians and the Greeks, right. yep. <laughs> which, you know, we're having conversations about that stuff right now, obviously. Yep. Um, but the new Australians and yeah, I mean, it was an incredibly vibrant time and not enough bands, you know, that just sounds, um, quite strange to us to hear that now yeah, when, does, yeah. you, you know, I'm booking shows at the moment and, um, things are booked four months out mm-hmm. at least four months out now even five years ago before covid you could kind of get a show within two months yep. now it's four so like i struggle a bit because i don't think that far ahead <laughs> i really don't chris my, yep. my i'm just you know i'm totally just you know like a lot of musicians a bit freaking airy fairy i'm just thinking about choruses and verses and melodies and i'm really busy as well working with other people um i don't yeah, I, sometimes I go, oh, shit, i got to go and book a show or help get someone to help me or whatever. Yeah, and uh, I've heard a lot of artists talk about that, the, the different parts of the brain that you have to use. Ah, awful. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and like I, the last time I toured, um, you know, I managed to line up 11 dates across Canada and one of my friends... Wow, said, see, that's how did, how did you so do that? good that I you said, did... Yeah. Well, I had to p- start planning about seven months out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, whereas, like, if you're doing it instinctively... You'd say, okay, the album's ready. I yes. Want do, I want to do some gigs in two weeks. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't really Forget work. Forget about it. Yeah. <laughs> I finished my album, yeah, recently and then went, oh, I've got to launch it. And um, no, nah, everything's booked out. And yeah, it's a real talent. Some musicians um, are great at switching on different sides of their brain. Um, they just have that, you know, you've got to be very, yeah, you've got to be incredibly tenacious. I mean, any artist knows that. You've mm. got to can't take anything personally but then you've got to sit down and take it all personally uh, in giving yourself in the writing i mean you can't you know if you don't then your music's pretty shit let's be honest if you don't sort of lay it bare um you but 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 then yeah then you got to turn around and be a hard ass so Um, it's it's yeah and and those first good luck kids yeah I should as run a, a workshop. <laughs> <laughs> no, I shouldn't. As um, yeah, thinking about being a kid, like just I just remember my late teens, like sending out demos and yeah. not, not hearing back from bookers at, at venues you really wanted to play. I know, at, and it was just still happens. Destroying. Still happens, Chris. <laughs> Little tear rolls down your cheek. Maybe more for me than you, Dan. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so back on the album. Um, for me, what's um, really jumped out is that there seems to be a lot of movement um this there seems to be it's almost like a travel diary um so um even on uh love on love closing in mm. and old betty there's yep. there's sort of we're getting a picturesque sort of movement through um the subject's mm. life um I, I don't know how personal these are or how not they are or um but does it 
Would it be tr- fair to say that there's a lot of travel and movement on their album for you? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I mean, uh, when I was writing it, I was certainly doing a lot of, um, you know, as I wrote in the press release, that the, the album, the album, you know, the, the title, you know, the, the title's a little bit ambiguous, The Ballad of Cowboy Dan. Um, the reality is of, yeah, a lot of time spent alone, a lot of walking um, and a lot of meditation, not, not traditional meditation, a lot of meditating while I'm walking um, and... Yeah, I guess there's a sort of languidness to the record. Um, past ones have possibly been a bit more um, visceral and jagged, you know. And I'm getting, and I'm getting older. I, I, you know, I think I'm becoming a bit more of a well-rounded person, as we all do, and that's not a bad thing. Mm. Um, things, things are less black and white. Um, on 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 the album they're less mm. black and white they're more I, mean, I don't know if you don't if you don't become that then you know you're a bit of you turn into a bit of a tool really <laughs> you don't want to be an older tool so it's nothing worse you know you can kind of get away with it up until the age of about 30 but you know after that you've got to be a bit more expansive i hope mm. that the record's a bit more expansive and i hope that it's a bit more of a reflection of exactly um of my um maturity yeah for me um I thought that the, the the nature of the music is that sometimes, uh, in some points, it's almost more sort of whimsical and a little bit more sort of um, upbeat. The themes to the lyrics, though, um, I wouldn't just say. If, I wouldn't, would, you, would you say that they're dark? I think they're certainly more ready to explore your own ego, which is I think mm. where you're, you're going with um, you know not being a tool. <laughs> yeah, I haven't thought about the themes. Um, I haven't had a chance chance to yet. I guess because I've just um, released it. Uh, I think I'd have to look back in about a year's time to go, oh, that's because it becomes very clear. Yeah, and you're too close to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. another year or so I'll go, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. I, 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 I used to think that I, I used to think that there was a difference between the art and the artist, but now I know that there isn't. So... Every word is true. <laughs> That's my diary. That's basically my diary written uh, with a melody added. It's a big conversation, that one. But it is a big um, conversation, but it's, you know, I used to, because you look back and you go, well, yeah, that's exactly, you know, that lyric, it's still not, not going to be easy for people to interpret, but you go, it still might be abstract, but but it's, mm. it's also, well, nah, you know, there's a reason why you were singing that song and... Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean a lot of my favorite songs from the outside are a little bit abstract, but when you know the the right context or moment happens in your own life and and the meaning sort of becomes apparent mm. um that I think those moments of revelation are really beautiful. Um there's a song by The National which is about um one of Matt's uncles watching his daughter move off to New York um and feeling like he can't protect her anymore. Mm. Um, and the refrain is, all the most important people in New York are 18. That's watching his daughter go. Um, and you could listen to a song like that and go, what the hell? What the hell is that about? Um, but then when you're a parent, suddenly yep. listening to this thing and thinking about your kids, like going off to do their first you know, trip to the city on the public mm. transport or whatever it is, and that 
you're not in control of that situation and you're not there to protect them. Yeah, um, it'd be better be difficult. When when I turned 18, I um I I left school for the day. I took a change of clothes and I caught the train into the city um, from the, from the suburbs and uh, I went to um, Young and Jackson's nice. and I sat at the bar and I ordered a beer and um, I started sipping the beer and I got talking to this guy at the bar who um, said to me, um, you're a good looking young fella. You need to be careful around these parts. Someone <laughs> might take a shining to you. And... <laughs> That was my introduction to um, to, to being able to, to pu- public uh, publicly allowed to drink. I'd been drinking for about three or four years before that um, under the under the radar. Yeah. But you know, I thought that was pretty funny. That was my introduction to um, legal drinking. I think illegal drinking was safer. Um, so a couple of lyrics that jumped out at me were... Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> so on Losing Love, you've got 42 years old and nothing to show for it. Oh, yeah. Um. So I'm older than that. So that song, um, that song is from a woman's perspective. Okay. Yeah. And she's talking about a two-time, um, two-time loser. And that song, um, there's two songs on the album that were written. Um, so that was an off cut from the Broken Arrows from, yeah. So it's got a few years on it. Yeah, it's got a few years on it. And I've done, that's the third version I've done of that. I've demoed it twice before Mm. and I always wanted to put it on an album and I felt that it fit in with this. So, yeah. Um... And on Can't Stop What's Begun, Following You Your Whole Life, that was another line that struck me. And um, it's um, there's certainly that interrogation of ego and self. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're still too close to it mm. um, to comment anymore, but um, I just, uh, once again, that juxtaposition of um, largely sort of upbeat and, and more um, vibrant music against the sort of darker themes. Mm. Um, I guess that song's a bit of a nightmare mm. and um, it depends. Everyone's got something, um, everyone's got something following them around. Everyone's got something to hide and it's the negotiation between yourself and whatever that is, whether it's an addiction, whether it's... Um, something you're ashamed about or you know family issues early childhood trauma um it's basically yeah the the things that we fear the most um and i think you've got to at some point um it's about it's about the light and the dark Mm. it's about incorporating the two in order to survive i really like that song I i i love the the nightmare sci-fi element of it with the mm. keyboards and everything. It's very, very Brian Eno. Um, so Lost Inside a Dream, beautiful piece of music. No no vocals. W- were there vocals or lyrics penned originally or was it always going to be an instrumental? Or? Again, that's from, um, that's from before my first record. Wow. So you've chosen ones. Thank you. And a friend said to me recently, no offence, but um, <laughs> I really like the song. 
without the vocals on it. And <laughs> she goes, I kind of wish there were vocals on it. She goes, it's a really lovely piece of work. And I said, no offence. Um, as a musician, um, people come and tell you things um, often quite offensive and hurtful to your face. And I don't know, I think a lot of people think that you're quite bulletproof because of the uh, what you do and that you're on stage. Um, I, I've gotten pretty good at, you know, um, accepting that. People just want to tell you stuff sometimes and, um, you know, or they tell you they like your early stuff. Stuff. Have you considered writing a hit song? Like, <laughs> what's the Kathleen Edwards lyric come? Um, write a hit so we can talk you up. Right, right. <laughs> well, they say other things. They say, um, yeah. Uh, it, I've got a whole list in my head. It's quite. I mean, it's quite hilarious. But anyway, what you said is not an insult. Um, no, it was never meant to be. Never, never. It was never meant to have. Um, lyrics. If you put it in context with my first two albums, um, it would fit perfectly in with those. Right. Yeah. yeah. In other words, un un amongst like 25, 30 songs, um, all have that really nice acoustic, which a lot of people love that sound and that part of my career, the Broken Arrows, with the lap steel, with my brother, tons of reverb, all dripping mm. with beauty and um, quite ethereal at times. Um, it fits in with that and um, yeah I think at the time I we would have my brother and I wrote that one we would have gone oh wow um, sort of like a nice yeah Mazzy Star type yeah surf instrumental or something mm. yeah it's a long answer sorry no I'm beautiful so yeah no no lyrics for that um, so after all of these themes that we um, go through on the album the the album actually ends with the the title track. Oh, yeah. Um, the Ballad of Cowboy Dan. Um, it's a beautiful, reflective piece. Um, I, I, Thank you. Um, I was quite moved listening to it, but it also almost feels like it's the resolve or the, um, the processing of everything that's come before it. Um, how do you feel about that piece of music? Because for me, listening to it, it was... it felt like acknowledging where people can be as a part of the world that we're in and being able to let go of a lot of the things that we think matter mm. and just exist. That's a lovely interpretation, Chris. I, I'm not sure um, what what it's about um, as such. Um, uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't thought much about that. Um, what I'll say, though, is that I did a... I made a spoken word album over lockdown. Okay. Yeah, it's 23 pieces. Um, and that was, the Ballad of Cowboy Down was meant to be the beginning of that album. Right. Yep. Right. So I, the pieces are so damn dark, even for my, um, you know, sensibilities that I um, ended up, I, I didn't want to release it. And yeah. that piece survived um that was the beginning of the really the beginning of the album um so yeah it's a spoken word uh piece and yeah again i think it uh reflects a more um um measured view of my extremely feeble limited tiny 
minuscule existence in space and time. Really, that's yeah. that's the best I can do for that. And and I do hope um, I hope people like that one. And yeah, a couple of friends have said that it's quite um, they get quite moved when they listen to it. So that's mm. nice. It's quite a kind of kind of sad as well. It's kind of got that sad, happy thing going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like, what's the saying that about, um, you know, some people are sad that um, things don't last, but that's also the beautiful part. Yeah. You know, it, enjoying and appreciating the moment you have while it's there. Yeah, I um, I stopped, stopped drinking about two and a half years ago and um, it's been quite a powerful thing for me to do. Um, in terms of um, uh, seeing seeing the beauty in in the world and in people and enjoying the moment, I just found alcohol pushes you um, too far into the future and too far into the past sometimes, and 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 even the next day with anxiety and so. I've really enjoyed, um, really enjoyed being sober. Mm. Yeah, Excellent. not not shoving it down people's throats. But <laughs> 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 anyway, that's that's the big thing of yeah, that, yeah. It's, well, that it's, almost it's nice. Dumped. It's it's really helped my performance playing live, and it's helped me. It's helped everything. Yeah, it's interesting because like uh, I, I don't mind a drink, but um, mm. I've never. Uh, had a drink before I go on stage. Yep. It's, it's always been one of those mantras for me that um, I want to be fully present in that moment. I want to feel yep. a little bit of the nerves and then I want to, like, kick through that so that mm. I'm, I'm there for the performance. Um, whereas a lot of musos I know are like, well, I need one or two before I feel yeah. like I get on stage. So Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah and that almost sort of brings uh, us up to the next question I was going to ask, which was if you had important things that you've learned through this combined experience other than just, you know, finding a place that you're more present in the world. Do you mean the making of the album? Uh, through all of your musical experience? Um, ah. Um, have I learnt anything? Mm. Um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> don't know if I've learned anything. I mean, uh, music's very much part of my uh, identity and um, I think it's it's a really healthy um, a healthy and good coping mechanism. Um, we all need something, yeah, we all need something to lean on and, um, you know, some people have sport, community, family, yeah. um, all those things can be great. Um, I, um, yeah, I, mu music continues to, to be this, um, nice, um, um, nice place to, um, uh, reside, a, a good, a, a safe place for me to reside in, mm. you know, away from, away from the world, the imagination, it's a, it's a, mm. it's beautiful. Um, one conversation I've had with a, a few musicians and performers is that um, the stage is actually the safe place. Oh, yeah. Um, you feel more natural and more yourself. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. And, you know, you've got a. It's true, but 
you do have to find some peace out of it too. You know, you can't spend your life on stage, unfortunately. Back back to what you said about the finite nature of what, of, of our lives um, as as a, as the stage is. You know, um, I mean, unless you're Bruce Springsteen, but you know, that's, sorry, Bruce fans, but that's too long. I went and saw him in three and a half hours. Um, but no, again, it's about yeah, it's it's. Um, yeah, really good. I, I'm glad you raised that. Um, even, you know, I play with other people now. I play mm. piano with a whole bunch of bands in Melbourne and I love doing that. And even with them not playing my own music, um, it's one of the few moments, unless it's a terrible show, which, you know, you get those occasionally, but you really are in the moment and um, it's such a beautiful place to be in. Mm. It really is. And some people do yoga to get that or cooking or sex or, yeah, um, getting in that flow state. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice place, you know, as opposed to uh, other jobs I've done where you're staring at the clock and it's only yeah. four past nine in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, and have you had um, a moment that was like your most desperate moment of innovation? Like did something go terribly wrong at a gig where you had to improvise on the spot or in a studio session? Or? Um, things go wrong all the time, mm. all the time. And um, as a seasoned musician, um, I can see, I can see it happen all the time with the biggest bands in the world because you know I can I can see all the signs um and I guess um uh you um the the, the trick of it is this bit of a sleight of hand to the audience um you don't show you don't show that yeah I mean yeah you know I've played with some people before who stop a song and or they overanalyze the show afterwards, which, you know, is, again, it's something you kind of do when you're a bit younger. Mm, but, you know, yeah. after a while, you're like, for God's sake, who cares? Um, There'll always be another gig. Always be another yeah. gig. And the the, 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 the good part, of the, you know, the kind of good thing about it is it's the, it's the imperfection um, of it. That's what live music is. It's human. And, yeah, mm. shit goes wrong all the time, Chris, all the time. I mean, the little things like guitar straps falling off and, yep. um, yeah, uh, you get pretty good at um, um, keeping the show going. Yep. And any uh, out-of-place notes, that's when it's jazz. Um, yeah, it's jazz, yeah. That's true. Well, Dan, thanks so much for making the time to come in today and have a chat about the new album and um, all of your sort of music history. Um, thanks, there... Chris. It's been, a real, it's been a real pleasure. I mean, that, it's been um, lovely talking to you. And are there things that you want to give a plug to before we sign off today? Um, sure. Um, I want to give a plug to my mate Leroy McQueen. <laughs> and uh, Leroy is was in the Gooch Palms and uh, with their uh, partner Cat, and uh, I've been playing piano with Leroy for most of the year. And they've got a new single coming out. Um, ben Maswick and his Millions have a new album coming out next year, also produced by Mick Hubbard. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, they're all, you know, um, one of the things that, um, one of the most, the biggest cardinal sin you can do in music, I think, is 
be boring and both of those characters are far from boring <laughs> and I, uh, I think it's one of your jobs is to um, be entertaining and uh, those two certainly are. So just, I don't know, shout out to them. Excellent. Yeah. Um, so your new album is um, out on Bandcamp. Oh, yeah. Um, best cuts to the artist. Yeah, it's not uh, too bad. And, yeah, yeah, people are always buying it on there. I send it all around the world. And Excellent. Yeah, just do it all myself. Uh, and there is also vinyl, so people should get on the vinyl. You got T-shirts for the new release? Um, it's one of the things I need to do. Right, okay. <laughs> I did uh, singlets last year. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, and I did it with a I, – I went and got the screen print and another friend in a band goes, oh, that's just insane. That's just a time vampire. <laughs> but, um, you know, there's also such a thing as um, the process – Mm. Yes, I had I had a ball. I did it. Yeah. yeah, I did it in the garage on a hot day. Hung them all out, ironed them, um, and yeah, you know, I probably saved myself two hundred dollars, <laughs> and it took me twelve hours. Yeah, but um, <laughs> so much fun. Yeah, so yeah, I have a lot of fun with merch. I had a friend, got a friend Sam, who helps me come up with some ideas. So I've got badges and key rings. Nice. I'm going to do some calendars with my clothes on, in case you're wondering. And, Except uh, if you're on the Patreon, then there's the other calendar. Oh, yeah, the other calendar. My God. You know, um, that's such a, yeah, only fans and stuff, you know. Uh, I've got a friend who works in that industry, mm. in the sex industry, and her she doesn't do only fans, but her friend makes um yeah over two hundred thousand dollars a year so that's yeah, something amazing. to be but it's a it's a full-time job you know I've, mm. I've done a lot of content sorry folks who are listening sorry i have to do content but for this album and it was an insane amount of work yeah, you could yeah. you know i talked about this on another podcast you could do it all day um and yeah i don't know i had a newfound respect for content creators mm, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's why people hire. I guess that's what record labels are now. They're probably, much, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's probably what you hire people for. You go, they all they say to you, you know, this is what we'll do. For yeah, you. yeah, show, yeah, and show a picture of yourself buttering toast every morning <laughs> and put different spreads on and do ten of those, and we'll help you market it. Um, people love it's a bit, that. It's a little it's, sad, and it's really connected to the music. So. <laughs> <laughs> so look I did it for about a month and now I'm not doing it because that's that's yeah. I'm not going to swear on your podcast but that's enough that's yeah. enough already you know you say whatever you want oh thanks <laughs> I've been holding my tongue um yeah so thanks again Dan yeah thanks Chris um, it's been a pleasure and I love this little studio we're in too um so there's probably going to be a launch for this album early next year is that the the plan yeah yeah I've got some um I'm thinking at the moment I'm in discussion with a small venue in Melbourne to do um, a five-week launch. Beautiful. Just to, like, really cause myself some pain because I love <laughs> playing and do and spread it out of. And yeah. so the whole of Melbourne will get a chance to come along on, a like, a Sunday sesh and I'll have guests maybe uh, from interstate or maybe even some international supports. Uh, and just make and do a chook raffle, a meat meat tray raffle. I don't know if you can. No. Can you do those anymore with OHS? I'm pretty sure you probably can't. Um, <laughs> it doesn't matter. You, we'll if do you one. Do an earlier episode of this podcast. You'll hear about uh, a band I was playing in getting stopped mid set so that a community could do a chook raffle. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that has happened to me. 
That has happened to me. The other thing, all right, Australia, listen to this. You do have a few problems with live musicians sometimes. I'm sorry, Australia, but I'm calling a spade a spade. Playing in front of a big screen like NRL Grand Finals, particularly in New South Wales, they do it. Um, yeah, or they refuse to turn it off. Yep. I've had that. Done it. Done it all. Um, you know, and so the whole audience is watching the screen behind you. Mm. I mean, really, come on, come on, come on, Australia. Lift uh, your game. At least put the sports bar in another room. Come on. So we will give you um, your launch a bit of a plug. Um, yeah, yeah. When, I'll, when it comes around. I'll let you know when it is, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so thanks again, Dan, and um, everyone go off and get the new album. And we'll sign off as usual with There is magic in the mystery of not quite knowing what you're doing. Thanks, everyone. Q playback.